Well, thank you, Sammy and Jacob, for leading us in worship and song and music. We have already heard the gospel several times this morning, singing how holy our God is, that he is our redeemer, and that Jesus has paid it all for our sins. Even after coming to Christ, it doesn't matter how many days, weeks, or years that we've been with Christ, we need reminded of this. It is how we're kept and we're encouraged. Now we turn to God's word to hear the gospel that was written for us. So I ask that you'll please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 8. We are returning to our summer series in the Psalms this morning, and this morning we are looking at the 8th Psalm. In my Bible, it is entitled, How Majestic is Your Name, and how fitting that is, speaking of the majesty of our God. Beginning in verse 1, please follow along with me. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor." You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's go to him again in prayer. Father God, as we turn now to the preaching of your word, I pray that you will open our ears and our hearts to the truth of your wonderful word. Father, I pray that we will just bask in the goodness and the truth of this psalm this morning and that you will feed our souls. Father, help us to take the next step of faith, to stay on that path of righteousness, to submit in obedience. And Father, we ask that it is by your Holy Spirit that we will follow. Draw us, Lord, by your goodness and your grace this morning. Father, I pray that you'll help me not to speak in error and may your people, may your people be strengthened and encouraged. It's in your name. Amen. Well, it is good to be back here this morning. It was good to be away as a family. It was our first time in three years. And so I thank you for allowing us to get away for this time. But we missed you. And we are glad to be back here worshiping with all of you. I want to also thank Pastor Ted for preaching the past three weeks, we were blessed as a church with his faithful preaching in Philippians and sharing the J-curve with us. It's valuable to us going forward as a body who cherishes the cross of Christ. 
These last few weeks, I was fed along with the rest of you, knowing the truth of pressing onward toward Christ because he has already attained our salvation and eternal fellowship with us. And so we learn even in suffering to keep dying and rising and becoming more like our Savior. This is really helpful as we return to our summer series. It was not by accident that I asked Pastor Ted. I had heard of the J-curve. He had spoken of this for a while before he came here, and I asked him to, to preach on that topic. It's not by accident. It's not going out in left field somewhere. It is really applicable as we return to the Psalms. The Psalms are incredibly relevant to us today, whether they're read or they're sung or they're prayed, they are for us. They are the human experience. And for the Christian, they remind us that what we have with Christ is because of His sacrifice for us on the cross and then His power over our sin and over death and His resurrection. And that is how our sin is then atoned for and how we are given new life with Him. And that is what the J-curve reminds us. You'll remember when we began the summer series, we began with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Together they are the introductions to the book of Psalms. They both point to Christ, although Christ is not mentioned by name. And so the J-curve, again, the suffering, the dying, and the rising in the likeness of Christ that we learned from Pastor Ted will help us understand and really help us to live by faith in Christ as we go through the rest of this series and really the rest of our lives. Life, all of our experiences, are ultimately all about Jesus Christ. The Psalms are about Christ. The Bible is about Christ. Everything we experience and have in life is ultimately about Christ. Now we return to the book of Psalms, looking at Psalm 8, and we will see in these nine short verses, we are shown the role of human beings in creation in light of God's majesty, the original design for people having dominion over the rest of creation, and in that, God's majesty is displayed, but there is more to this psalm. It never ends with us. This psalm is not about our greatness or our goodness in the order of creation. That is not where we're headed ultimately this morning. It's like adjusting a camera to get it into focus. Have you ever looked at something and saw one thing, but upon closer examination, you began to see more clearly what you were looking at? Turning that lens doesn't change the picture that you're looking at. It just gives it sharper focus. It brings more into clearer view. Not that your first thought was wrong to what you were seeing. You're just looking further, and that gives you a better perspective. For instance, the other day, last weekend actually, the, we were as a family on our way to Richmond We were on the interstate, and I see all these brake lights coming up up ahead. 
all the cars lighting up red. And I begin to think, oh no, here comes a traffic jam. We have somewhere to be by a specific time and we had nowhere to go. It was Gretchen's graduation. We had to get her there. We want her to graduate and go through this ceremony. We had to get there. And so I began to look and see which lane would be the fastest to get into. But the closer we got to all that traffic, I noticed that it wasn't as bad as I first thought. I was able to maneuver around and keep going. My first observation wasn't wrong. There were lots of red lights up ahead. There was traffic. But looking at it further, I had better insight. Now, I know that's a very simple example for us this morning. The point is that normally a deeper truth is there upon when we first look at something and we understand something, there's actually a deeper truth that we, if we keep looking at it, we just need to spend the time, dig a little bit deeper, and we'll see that deeper truth. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. That's what we have here in Psalm 8. And really, it's that way in every chapter in the book of the Bible. There's always something to understand in context that the writer is expressing, whether it be about our faith or life in the church, an aspect of God's character, a command or an exhortation to follow. But upon further study, we see that it's really pointing us to Christ. It's about Him. He is the end of it all. He is the end of all things. So keep that in mind as we look at Psalm 8 this morning. And as we keep this in mind, and what Christ has even said about Himself, you'll remember that He said that the whole Bible is ultimately about Him. So we'll be looking at Psalm 8 with that view in mind. It doesn't matter where we're reading, it ultimately leads to Him. Our faith and our obedience to Christ must have this understanding that we're going to read about in Psalm 8. And while Psalm 8 is a mark of God's majesty as it's shown throughout all creation, and we are part of that creation, there's really more to see here. It has both general and special revelation involved in this psalm. Both the general revelation of God as you look out throughout creation, and then the special revelation of looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's how we will look at Psalm 8 This morning, the psalm shares more insight to not just God's majesty in general, but to Christ's majesty and his importance. And so we're going to be turning that lens of creation this morning and its established order. And we're going to focus on God's majesty, ultimately on the God man, Jesus Christ. So that's just telling you where we're headed this morning. Looking at Christ, we see the most beautiful, the most convincing, the most complete picture of God's majesty. The main thing we need to grasp and focus in on and embrace and hold dear today is the majesty of God in 
Jesus Christ. And not just some distant wonder about Him, not holding Him at arm's length and just admiring Him from afar, but recognizing you are created for God's glory, you have been created for a purpose, and you have an exalted place in creation to care for God's world and to live in such a way that Christ's name is lifted high. That He is loved by you and by those around you. Before we get there, we need to understand how creation, and again, that includes you and me, how creation fits into this majestic display of God. And then how Christ fulfills what creation has failed to do. And all of it by design so that lens ultimately zooms right in on the God-man, Jesus Christ. And you and I are then ushered in to just awe and worship of the Lord Jesus. In the title of this psalm, we're told that David is the author. We're not told of any special occasion as to why he wrote this psalm. It says, to the choir master, according to Gittith. Other psalms also have this word Gittith in the title, so it's not something special to David. Gittith is probably some kind of musical term. Thus, this psalm is a joyful thanksgiving psalm that was sung. It is a praise song. The Trinity's Psalter hymnal has three versions of this psalm in their hymnal. Keith Green, if you know who that Christian artist was, he wrote and sang a great song about Psalm 8. I've been playing it for the kids over and over, just letting it sink in. And they're trying to figure out why is Dad keep playing the song? Well, this is why. It's about Psalm 8. The psalm is a beautiful, uplifting psalm to sing of God's great and glorious name. We can take a Psalm 8 and really it's sung together, but we can look at Psalm 8 and break it into four parts. You have verses 1 and 2 that focus on God and His glory. You have verses 3 and 4 that look at really the insignificance of man when looking at creation. And then verses 5 and 8, the significance of of man when looking at creation. We'll be looking at both sides of that today. And then verse 9 repeats verse 1. The New Testament quotes this psalm several times. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5, uses Psalm 8 to point to Jesus as the ideal Israelite, the ideal human being, by being crowned with glory and honor after living how man should live and then suffering on behalf of mankind. It is also quoted two other times in Matthew 21, verse 16. Jesus quotes part of the psalm. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 27, Paul brings it up to make a point about the supremacy of Christ. So Psalm 8 begins with verse 1, and the message is clear. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then look again, like I said, in verse 9, it's repeated again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all 
the earth. The name of the Lord is majestic. Now we don't talk like that, do we? We don't use that word very often. David is saying the name of God is awesome. God's name is awesome. It's magnificent. It's the best name. It's astounding. It's awe-inspiring. And not just held up high and respected along with other names. No, God's name is majestic in all the earth. All the earth. Notice in English, your Bible says Lord twice. O Lord, our Lord. In Hebrew, they're different. They're different words. The first one in your Bible, most likely, is Lord with small caps with it. That signifies the personal name of God, Yahweh. It has meaning, the name, God's personal name, Yahweh, has the meaning of being. Of being or existence. In Exodus 3, you'll remember Moses asked God when God is calling him. What is your name? God responds with, in verses 14 and 15 of Exodus 3, God responds like this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is God's name, Yahweh, and it means I am. And when we say it, we say He is. When God says His name, He says I am. And when we say His name, we say He is. He is. It means God will not change. God will not change. He is. This is His name forever. I am who I am. His character, all that God is, never changes. He's immutable. He never changes. In His name, it also means God has always existed. Who has sent you to us? I am. I am has sent me to you. God, Yahweh, He is the self-existing One. He always was, He always is, and He always will be. He depends on nothing and everything else depends on Him. Later in the book of Exodus, in chapter 33, God, having led His people out of Egypt and Israel, is still in the wilderness. Moses is again talking with God. And he asks God, God, show me your glory. And God responds in verse 19 of chapter 33. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God's goodness, His grace and compassion are all wrapped up and defined by His name, Yahweh. He is. God is. 
J.I. Packer, the great theologian of our time who just passed away and is now in the presence of our never-changing God, said, in God's name is the announcement of His character. In the name of God is the announcement of His character. His name signifies the manifestation of His presence. In other words, His name tells us a lot about God. There is nowhere where He is not the absolute one. There is no time when God is never gracious and compassionate and the ultimate one. There is no other name that is as majestic as His name. In all the earth, His name is the highest. And that means His name deserves the most respect, the highest regard. O Yahweh, our Lord. We're used to the second use of this word Lord, meaning our master, Adonai, our ruler, our king. O Yahweh, our Adonai. David wants us to see the greatness of God, to stand in awe, to be enthralled with him. David then begins to explain what is it about God's name that is so great and his glory is set above the heavens. But not only his glory above the heavens, he says God has established strength from the mouths of babies and infants to show all his enemies. David has taken us to the highest view of God to the great display of His glory. And then in verse 2, He brings us down to the most helpless among us, to babies and infants, to the totally weak and dependent. And He says, out of their mouths, God is defeating His enemies. God shows us His glory, not just in the great, grandiose ways that impress his glory is seen in the weakest, most vulnerable human beings. There's something about babies that stop adults in our tracks, isn't there? Grown men will get on the floor and do things they wouldn't normally do with a baby. Playing with the baby and trying to get the baby's attention. Man doesn't normally act that way. All the pain of childbirth leaves a woman. When she sees another baby, she starts thinking of having another. But there's more in this verse than the cuteness and the wonder of little kids. We go from God's glory in the heavens and jump to how God will defeat his enemies, and that is through the mouth of a child. This child will be born of a virgin and will defeat God's enemies. And other children and infants will hear of him and they too will worship God. Their lips will praise him out of their mouths. They will sing and they will speak of this child. When the gospel of Christ is heard and understood by a child, they speak of its truth. There is power in their words. God doesn't just use the greatest. He uses the weakest. 
God doesn't need any help. He doesn't need any kind of army. He doesn't need the backup or reserves. He uses the weakest among us. God gets all the glory because He takes what seems like the most insignificant and He displays His majesty from them. It says this in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And in 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, we're told God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Now this should give hope to mom and dad. There is purpose and reason to all your time and effort of pouring into your kids. All parents need reminded of that. All Christian parents. Knowing this greatness about God, David then turns to one aspect of Him. And that is that He is the Creator. Our God is the Creator. David looks at creation and is in wonder and amazement. It takes his breath away and he sees how insignificant man is in verses 3 and 4. The entire world is proof of God's glory and His splendor. The earth and everything in it is His. And it came about because He created it. He made it so. The New City Catechism says God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal and infinite and unchangeable. In His power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through Him and by His will. God created all things at the work of His fingers. Nothing happens except through Him and by His will. Everything is under God's rule. Your life, you Exist everything about you, your life, my life, occurs through the creative power of God, and it's by His will. That should put some perspective on how you and I look at ourselves. We are alive today because of the creative power of God. God has deemed it so. I am not the ruler. I am not the master of my destiny. I can't create something into existence. Anything I make comes from something that already exists because God has already made it so. Only God has the ability to create out of nothing. And He did it simply by speaking it into existence. In comparison to the rest of creation, you and I are really small. Really small. 
Verses 3 and 4 show us that the greatness of God is infinite and we, we humans are nothing. How often do you and I need to be reminded of these two verses? We are so swollen with pride. We think we're the center of the universe. And here's the truth. The reality is we should be surprised and taken back that God would even consider us. How awesome is it that God, as insignificant as you are, how awesome is it that God thinks of you in the midst of everything else in this world? God knows you. God knows you personally. And He knows you better than you know yourself. And He cares for you. How awesome is that? How awesome that Almighty God knows you like that. Consider how fascinating and awesome a star is in outer space. Think of our sun. Our sun is considered a star. Here's what NASA has to say about our sun. Our sun is an average-sized star. There are smaller stars and larger stars, even up to a hundred times larger. Many other solar systems have multiple suns, while ours has just one. Our sun is 864,000 miles in diameter and 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface. And there are billions of stars. And yet, as awesome as that is, God has a special place in the created order for you and for me. That's what verses 5 and 6 tell us. Out of all His creation, God could have chosen anything to represent Him and to watch over His creation and care for it. But He chose us. He chose you and me to look after His creation. We are the ones who are created in His image to care for His world. We are the ones who have been crowned with His glory and honor as His ambassadors. In his commentary, James Johnson points out, the picture of a beautiful woman reflects her beauty in the same way God made us in His likeness to reflect His glory. So in creation, there's this created order, right, There are worldly mindsets. There are scientists who are blinded by lies who say that this world is just full of chaos. That it came together because chaos ran into chaos and somehow we have what we have here. But that's not so. Our creation that we are in the midst of is completely under the rule and has this order to it. And it continues simply because our God has spoken it into existence and by His power it continues. He sustains it. 
And by his word, he has said, humans will be my representatives created in my image to care for my creation so that I will get glory. He chose us. We are to reflect him. You and I have been appointed as the ones to have dominion and to care for his world. That's what verses six through eight say. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the, he- of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. There is nothing that is on this earth that is beyond our grasp. Man has cultivated the ground. We are in the sky. We are probing the depths of the sea. There is nowhere where we can't go. We are the highest life form on this planet. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the nearest to Him and we are chosen to be the ones that reflect Him and care for the rest of what He has created. But this isn't the case, is it? We look out there at the world and we say that this is not what this describes. We don't live that way. We should be spreading God's glory and be reflective of Him, but we don't. While this psalm takes us back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, With God creating the world, it also takes us back to Genesis 3 with the fall. Because mankind is not this way. Mankind is not fulfilling our created purpose of reflecting God's glory and caring for His world and worshiping Him for it. We don't care for God in the way that it's intended. Man uses it for his own gain. And in reality, the world is not under our control, is it? Planes don't always work in the air. There are animals that will eat us. In the water, there are creatures that do not submit to us. The world at times seems to overwhelm us. We are weak and helpless at times like those infants and those children. And yet, like the babes and the infants, God's strength is seen in our weakness when we cry out to Jesus. When you and I come to the end of ourselves and recognize we are not the center of it all, that Jesus is. You see, Jesus is the one who fulfills this song. He is the one who has lived out the created purpose of man. He lived in reflection of the Father. He has brought creation under control. Everything is under his feet. He has dominion over all things. He suffered and died for you and me, not living up to our created purpose. He took our sin upon Himself and then He rose from the dead. All who are in Christ will now reign with Him also. He sets the created order back in its place 
And through him, you and I can now live out and be those image bearers without stain of sin. In light of Christ, Psalm 8 looks to the future when God's people are renewed and will take their rightful place, ruling over the world for the glory of God. The same word of power that created all things has, that spoke into existence in this world, that same word of power is what we need saving us. And it's that word of power that puts this world and you and me in our rightful place. It was the weakness of his cross where Christ displayed this majesty of God. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 7, Christ emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, it is the majesty of Christ that sets you free and puts you back in your place where you were created to be. In the name of Christ is all that Yahweh is. All the grace, all the compassion, all the power that you and I need. The majesty of God in Christ. The majesty of God in Christ is not just when you first cry out to Him. He hears you and the enemy is defeated, but it's not just one time. For God's people, it's over and over and over again. We never stop having this need for the majesty of Christ. And like those babes and infants, we cry out and the strength of God defeats the enemy of sin and death. So what's your response to this amazing truth about God and Christ? Can you truly say, oh Lord, our Lord, oh Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Can you say that this morning? Here's a few things to remember. It's in Christ that you can truly praise God. And it's when, like a child, you embrace the truth of the gospel. And while we are insignificant in comparison to everything else that's been created, that should humble us. We are important in the created order, and that should give us encouragement. So we should be both humbled and encouraged, knowing where we rightfully belong, and that is under the rule of Jesus Christ. The reality is we do not subdue all things on earth. We're battling a pandemic right now. 
Those in Christ are not immune to the hard things in life. But when we reflect on God's glorious name, the name of Christ, we remember His goodness in our place with Him. His name is our glory. And His name is our salvation. How majestic is the name of God in all the earth. Let's pray.